Hello, and welcome to Mintz's podcast, From the Edge, where attorneys at the firm talk to awesome entrepreneurs, executives, and investors starting companies that are disrupting industries and changing the world. Mintz is a national leading law firm helping emerging growth companies achieve success. For other really interesting Mintz Edge podcasts with great insights, check out mintzedge.com. My name is Ben Stone, and I'm a corporate lawyer here at Mintz. I focus primarily on startups and emerging companies in clean energy and technology, most of which have a social impact mission to them. Prior to joining Mintz, I've been honored to serve as a founder, CEO, general counsel, and a lot of other things. And, and through those experiences, what I've learned is starting and running companies is really, really hard. On that note, it is my pleasure to introduce two amazing entrepreneurs who have hit the ground running and are building an incredible business that is impacting thousands of lives uh, around the U.S. and the world. First is Steph Spears, co-founder and CEO of Solstice. And second is Sandia Morali, co-founder and COO. Before we get started, I wanted to provide just a brief summary of these two extraordinary entrepreneurs' backgrounds. Uh, Steph Spears is a social entrepreneur and community builder with operational experience all over the world, including the U.S., Middle East, and South Asia. She previously led sales and marketing initiatives at D-Light India, a solar products company. She spearheaded Acumen's renewable energy sector investment strategy in Pakistan, developed Middle East policy as the youngest director at the White House National Security Council, and managed field operations in seven states for the first Obama presidential campaign. She also holds a BA from Yale and MBA from MIT. So you haven't really done that much so far, so we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, I also, it's, it's also my pleasure to introduce um, Sandia. She is responsible for a wide variety of things across Solstice. Um, began her career at Barclays Investment Bank Division in New York and London advising on uh, public equity transactions, and is also deeply involved in Barclays uh, philanthropy. She has done a lot of work for Endeavor, Women's World Banking, and a variety of other places, including working in Peru. She holds her BBA from University of Michigan and MBA from MIT. Thank you both so much for being here, and I'm really looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start. What led to the founding of Solstice, and, and what is Solstice? So I think our personal motivations for founding Solstice are a little different, so I'll allow, you know, we'll answer separately. Um, my own personal motivation is my mom is a low-income renter, and I noticed that low-income renters in this country are the least likely to get access to clean energy, even though they need solar savings the most. And when we dug into the problem, we found out that four out of five Americans are actually locked out of the rooftop solar market because they cannot put solar on their own home. And that includes reasons like they're renters, they're condo owners, there's a tree covering their roof, their roof faces the wrong way, it's made out of the wrong materials. So basically you have to be a unicorn to put solar in your home. And we wanted to unlock access for more people and that's why we started Solstice. So the reason I joined Solstice uh, four years ago now was really twofold. Um, I decided to go back to grad school to get my MBA to transition out of a career in investment banking into one of social impact. And I was really looking at uh, international development, quite honestly, as the field of that, that I would enter. Um, and I will credit MIT with exposing me to the 
sustainability and renewable energy industry, and really kind of exposing me to the very real threat that climate change presents. So when I was introduced to Steph through a classmate at Sloan, I was really taken by this dual social and environmental mission, um, wanting to expand renewable energy across our country, get more solar installed in the ground, but also figure out how to make the clean energy industry and the community solar industry work for the people that could stand to benefit the most from it. And so really combining my newfound interest in sustainability and renewable energy with this passion for social change and for creating a more equitable world that we live in uh, and being able to focus on those issues here at home, which from a personal perspective was sort of where I wanted to, to focus my time and energy. It sounds to me like there's a real market failure in the community solar and, and solar business altogether and that Solstice is really looking to, to fill that market failure. So, which leads to my question, nuts and bolts, what does the company do? Yeah, so for the first time in the history of the world, solar is cheap enough that it can help everyone save money on their electricity bills. But for the reasons I mentioned earlier, very few people can put solar on their home. And there's a solution out there and it's called community solar. So community solar means you don't have to worry about installing anything on your rooftop. You can buy a portion of a neighborhood shared solar farm and switch to solar that way. It's a subscription model, which means there's no upfront cost. You just pay for the power that's produced by your portion of a shared solar farm, and you pay for it at a discount to what you would have paid the utility. So in other words, no rooftop installation, no upfront cost, and immediate savings on your electricity bill every single year. It's a really good wow. value proposition for customers, and it's the most affordable and accessible type of solar out there. So that explains community solar. Solstice's obsession is how do we make community solar so easy and so affordable that everyone can sign up for it. So we have a software platform that makes it easy for households and businesses to plug into a local solar farm. And our platform makes it easy for the solar developers that are building the projects to manage their customers and manage the projects and manage the utility integration that needs to happen for the projects to go live. We also came up with financial innovations that allow for more access to community solar projects. For example, in order to get solar in this country, you need to have a FICO credit score of 700 and above. Mm -hmm. And very few people in this country have that credit score. Over half the country can't meet that requirement. And so we created our own score. It's called the Energy Score. It's based on your utility repayment history and other demographic data. And our algorithm is actually more accurate in predicting who will pay their utility bills when compared to FICO scores. And it's more inclusive of low to moderate income Americans. So rather than use FICO, which is an archaic measure of someone's ability to be a community solar customer, we use our energy score and there's nothing like it in energy right now. Wow. Sandia, based on uh, Steph's description of the Solstice business model, it sounds like the company can really help stem uh, climate change, but also have a major impact on an individual or family's life. Um, do you have an example of that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, really, everyone who we've enrolled in a community solar project wasn't able to get rooftop solar for their property. Uh, as Steph mentioned, they may be renters, their roof may not face the right way, uh, or they didn't really meet the, the credit requirements that rooftop solar companies imposed on them. And so 
pretty much every customer that we've enrolled to date is someone who couldn't do traditional rooftop solar for one reason or another. And so we've been able to connect them to a local community solar project, which means that without having to pay anything up front, they're now able to save 10 to 15 percent on their electricity bill each and every month. And that's meaningful savings for a lot of families that can amount to a couple hundred dollars a year, especially here in the Northeast, where most of our work has been, where electricity prices are very high and people are spending, you know, sometimes upwards of a couple hundred dollars a month. That was a really interesting description of the impact that the Solstice business model can have. On the flip side, how does the company make money so it can run these programs and have these great results? It turns out the services that we're providing are very much needed in this industry. So on the one side, you have solar companies, solar developers that are building these large-scale community solar gardens. And they're really good at raising the capital, the third-party capital, to build these projects. They're really good at handling all aspects of project development and getting solar panels into the ground, working with the utilities and getting these large projects approved. But with Community Solar, they now need to go and find a few hundred households for every project and enroll them and sign them up. And that's a huge undertaking. So there is a huge demand for the set of services we're providing, which is handling the entire end user customer experience from the top of the funnel marketing efforts to the entire sales process, getting people signed up to the ongoing management in our software platform. And we charge a fee to provide those services to these solar developers. So our revenue model is based on an initial upfront fee for every customer we enroll and a recurring annual fee for every customer managed in our software platform. And that's essentially how our our business model works. It's important to note that while this industry is rapidly expanding, it's doubled in each of the last three years, there's still a gap that needs to be served. And it's worth noting that we are structured as a hybrid, and so what I've just described is our for-profit entity. We do have a nonprofit that is focused on really pushing the envelope and the barriers of, of innovation in this industry to figure out how to make community solar work for all segments of the population. So the nonprofit is what developed our energy score that Steph mentioned earlier and is really focused on getting community solar projects set up that directly serve low and moderate income households. We don't believe that enabling access for these underserved communities is something that can wait. It's something that we think needs to happen along with the broader transition to clean energy, which is why we're structured as a hybrid social enterprise. So as you both know well, the, the concept uh, and the practice of social enterprise and social entrepreneurship is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, but what I found both on the ground and representing social enterprises is that it can become very complex, um, both from a legal perspective, but also just simply balancing the social with the enterprise on practically a daily, sometimes hourly basis, particularly when the social and the enterprise are often in tension. Um, how do you manage your hybrid organization? What are the challenges and what do you think are the opportunities to have a greater impact because of that model? In terms of managing the two entities, the 501c3 nonprofit and the C Corporation software company, we definitely look to the experts at Mints to help us make sure that all our governance practices are in place. But Ultimately, they're run like two separate organizations, two separate boards, two separate staff, two separate bank accounts, and 
we structured things that way because we wanted to make sure that we were keeping the mission of low-income inclusion quite sacred. We started out as actually just a nonprofit, and we found that the market of community solar and solar developers and solar financiers really weren't open to working with us unless we were able to solve one of their pain points. And as Sandhya mentioned, one of their pain points is really around that customer experience and that software gap that they feel. But they weren't really interested in low-income inclusion because they have to make their returns for their own investors. And so by making the business case to these solar developers that Solstice can solve your pain points around providing customer services, but if you work with us, we want you to be more inclusive. And we'd like you to be more inclusive, one, because it will lower your customer acquisition cost, you'll get more customers, and your returns will increase. But there's also the moral reasons for why we think inclusion is so important. Low-income populations are disproportionately paying a, a portion of their salaries towards energy. They're disproportionately bearing the brunt of pollution and climate change. They're disproportionately excluded from the clean energy market. And it's not a question of whether the green transition will happen. Green transition meaning our transition to clean energy. That is guaranteed. The green energy industry is growing at such a rapid pace that we will see that transition happen. But it is a question if that green transition is equitable. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned from the past few years of working on this is equity in clean energy is not going to happen on its own. Mm -hmm. Energy equity happens because we are determined to make it happen. And what we do today determines whether clean energy is equitable tomorrow. And because the market alone in a vacuum does not support low-income inclusion, we wanted to make sure that we would continue working on it by having a separate 501c3 nonprofit that could use philanthropic money that was more risk-taking and use it to prove out that the market could bear more participation with low-income inclusion. Meaning, initiatives like the Energy Score prove to developers that you can be more inclusive in the populations you serve and still have a higher qualification standard for who's going to pay their bills. We can prove using the market the business case for inclusion rather than rely on just charitable models that give away solar for free to low-income populations, which is hard to sustain. To me, that's, that's so exciting for so many reasons, but one of the most exciting reasons in my mind is because you're proving the entire concept of social enterprise along the way, which is that just because you're doing good and having a positive impact on society and the world does not mean that you're foregoing profits both for investors and for the company. What you're showing is that by having a positive impact, you're actually expanding the scope of profits and for both for investors and for the company, which is then a self-fulfilling prophecy of then having more impact. So I think that's a really exciting um, uh, that, you're, that you're proving that concept uh, on the ground in real time. That being said, Hearing your description of the business model and uh, the hybrid arrangement 
is fascinating, but also it just makes me exhausted just hearing it. Uh, you're effectively running three, maybe four companies at once. What are some techniques that you have found are helpful uh, in managing the stress and the workload and actually having a life? Um, I know that there are probably lots of entrepreneurs out there listening to this podcast saying, how do you do it? Uh, any, any tips? So having an amazing co-founder is certainly one of them. Uh, I was fortunate and blessed to have welcomed my first child about six months ago. And during that time, we were really in the thick of our fundraising journey. Uh, and it was really amazing to have Steph step in and she was leading everything up until that point, but then really took it to the finish line um, and afforded me the time off that I needed to be with my growing family, which was an amazing experience and amazing to come back to. And uh, we had closed our round and that was a great place to be when I returned uh, after maternity leave. So having an amazing team, so certainly your co-founders, your leadership team, but also really great teammates across the organization is what enables me to keep going. Starting a company, developing that company, and growing a company is really, really tough, um, especially when you're sort of navigating a new industry as well. Uh, but I think our team and the fact that we can celebrate each other's wins and successes and be together when we're experiencing those down those those valleys um, really makes it so that you can continue doing this day in and day out because it is it is challenging um, but the highs are incredibly high and it's amazing to to work with such an ambitious passionate group of people to be delivering both on this mission and also to create a really successful company there is a extraordinary amount of discussion these days about female-founded and female-led companies and how those types of how those companies are not necessarily getting access to the same financing opportunities, partnership opportunities, and other opportunities um, that they otherwise perhaps should. Um, have you experienced that at all? Um, and what's just your what's your experience as a female-founded, female-led company? Yeah, the statistics are really humbling. 2% of venture capital goes to female-founded companies. 17% of venture capitalists are actually women. And so when you look at those numbers, it's not a surprise that fundraising can be very tough. And it took us longer than I thought it would take us to find our first investor. And once we found that first investor, our round was oversubscribed very quickly. But that first investor took much longer than I thought. I, you hear that an entrepreneur should take around six to 12 months to close a round. And so I heard that stat and I thought, you know, we're hardworking. We can do it in a shorter amount of time, two or three months. We'll do it in two or three months. It actually took 10 months. And so as it turns out, we're completely average in that sense. And we had a lot of interactions with investors along the way that were pretty gendered uh, and inappropriate and very, you know, I can detail them if you'd like, but they were at times off-putting. You know, I was mm -hmm. told that I would raise around successfully because I dressed right and was pretty. And my response to that investor was, I have many strengths, but pretty isn't one of them. And, you know, in those moments, you don't know if that's the right response to, to, to call out someone who has so much power and capital. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another investor 
called me up and said, I happen to notice that your co-founder is pregnant and I want to know before we invest, what's your maternity leave policy? And my question to him was, have you ever asked a male founder what their paternity leave policy was? And he said, no, I've never had to do that. And I asked him, have you ever invested in women entrepreneurs? And he said, no. And I think that's really telling, but we have to have these hard conversations. And we were lucky enough to have a choice in who our investors are. And we have amazing investors that we're so proud to be in partnership with. But along that road was really bumpy sometimes. What I'm hearing is that one way to surmount all the obstacles uh, of being a, both a social enterprise and a female-founded, female-run company is to really align with the right investors and partners. Um, who are some of your partners and investors, and why are they aligned with you? Yeah, we feel really lucky to have this list of folks on board. Our lead investor was Sustain VC and Techstars Ventures and Techstars' Impact Investment Fund came in as well, as well as Total's Energy Ventures, and a number of VCs that support women entrepreneurs, including True Wealth Ventures, Able Partners, and Next Wave Ventures. In addition, we have amazing angel investors that came in for pretty sizable check sizes, including an individual named Michael Ferrante, who invests in a bunch of clean tech companies in Boston, a woman named Sachiko uh, Kuno, who started Halcyon Incubator in DC, and Jacqueline Novogratz, who started Acumen, and Chris Anderson, who started TED. They're just incredible people, and we're really lucky to have their support. Let's talk about guiding values and vision, because I think at the end of the day, when you are going to the mats every single day and you're so tired and you're dealing with problems every day, you have to rely on a vision and a mission and overarching values to fall back on in those times. So I read when I was doing the deep dive into the company to come up with some real hard-hitting questions, which I'm not sure I have put forth or not, but um, I did find something really interesting, which is that your guiding values as listed were integrity, gratitude, equity, hard work, and curiosity. Do you want to pick any one of those and just extrapolate a little bit more? Because I think that they're really fascinating, and I think it's pretty unique for a company to put those out there like that, uh, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, we came up with those values with some of our founding members of our team, and we sat down and we said, what are the values that represent us as a company, and what makes us unique? And one of them, for example, is gratitude. In psychological studies say that when we, as a population of people, when we do well, we attribute it to ourselves. And when we do poorly, we tend to attribute it to others, other reasons external to us that are the culprit for why we failed. And we wanted to flip that on its head at Solstice. We wanted to say, when we do well, let's thank the people who helped us get it here first, and then we can thank ourselves after, but let's thank the others who got us here, because there's an Isaac Newton quote, if I have seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, and we don't get anywhere we are without a help, a lot of help. And so one of the things we try to do is practice these values on a weekly basis. So every week in our all-hands meeting, the last 10 minutes, we write thank you notes to people who have helped the organization or to customers. And that's a, a gratitude practice we've been doing since day one. 
Steph, Sandia, thank you so much for being here today. This was an, a really awesome conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did too. Uh, before we leave, um, any last pieces of, it, of advice, lessons learned for the entrepreneurs out there who are just trying to get through every day and uh, make their company successful? I think the thing that I wish I'd known when I started is the sooner you realize that it's not about you and it's about your team, the more successful your issue area of concern will be. And empower your team, hire the most amazing people, and find amazing co-founders like Sandhya. That is the key to success. Thank you so much again. Best of luck to you, and I'm sure we'll be in touch since we talk all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you again for coming. This is Ben Stone, and I'm signing off from The Edge.